In case you haven't been on uh, social media in the last 12 hours, good for you. Good for you. For those of us who watch it because we have to, let me show you what was on social media last night coming from the um, pit of despair I like to call CNN. Listen. And obviously it's false. And look, he also knows deep in his heart that Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you had the letter U and a picture of an actual physical crane (laughs) next to it. He knows that this is, you know, an, an administration defined by ignorance of the world. And so that's partly him <laughs> playing to their base the and playing to their audience. Uh, you know, the, the, the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump um, that, that wants to think that, that, that Donald Trump's a smart one. And there are y'all, y'all, y'all elitists are dumb. <laughs> you, you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling, even though my your math and your reading. Yeah, you're reading. <laughs> You know, your geography, knowing other countries, sipping your latte. All those lines on the map. <laughs> Only them elitists know where Ukraine is. Sorry. I- Let me just say this. These uh, rubes that don't know math, don't know how to read. Let me just say this to, yes, the elitists. What is an elitist? Somebody who thinks they're better than everyone else. What was that? A demonstration that you think that half of the country that voted for this president, half of the country, it none but ignorant dummies that can't even read, that is the pure definition of an elitist, somebody who thinks they're better than everybody else. You think because you voted against Donald Trump or you don't like him, you are better than everyone else. Well, let me tell you something. These rubes, they know, they do know geography and those lines on that map. Boy, today, that one looks like Ohio. This one looks like Pennsylvania. That one looks like Florida. You know what? We might even be able to find our way on the map to Michigan. We might even be able to find Wisconsin after the Bernie people burn it to the ground. I am so sick and tired. We have to coexist. You know, it used to be That the day that America came together was the day after the election. But that doesn't happen anymore. Go back and listen to my monologue the day after President Obama was elected in 08. Go back and listen to it. He's my president now. He's all of our presidents now. We have to hope for the best, pray for the best, and do all we can to stop any policies that we, we truly believe are damaging to our country. But we don't wish for his failure. What were your monologues during, during the swearing-in, the day after the election? Get him. Impeachment. Get him. I so strongly disagreed with this, this candidate Donald Trump, because I didn't think he would do any of the stuff that he said he was going to do. And much to my 
one of the greatest surprises in my life. He did. What did I say the day of the election? He's my president now. And I have to do everything I can to help him make things right. I will stand against him when I must. And I will stand with him when I can. And he has given me opportunity to stand with him over and over and over again. Even though I don't like some of the stuff he does. I can stand with him because I'm a human being that can think. That's spelled T-I-N-K, I think. You were plotting this. You know why nobody's watching any of this impeachment? Because they don't believe it has anything to do with the truth. They don't believe that truth or justice, they don't even know what the American way is anymore, but they certainly don't believe that truth and justice is happening anywhere near Washington, D.C. or in the hallowed ivory tower halls of, yes, the elites that look down from their tower And all of the rubes down there, look at them, look at them. I have not wanted to secede from this union more than right now. Do it without us. Go ahead. Do it without us. See how long you last Grow your own food. Fight your own wars. Do it. You are so close to becoming the capital city as in the Hunger Games. Oh, look. <laughs> look at the little rubes. They work for a living. Oh, darling, we must get you into some nice makeup and clothing. Really? Those are the real people. And even President Snow knew you needed them. You don't think we play a role at all. You know what this battle is really all about? When it comes right down to it, the State Department and the intelligence community and all those who think to themselves and it's with every president republican or democrat i don't care what the president says because we already have a plan and we're executing it and we've been here longer than any president they come and go well what are those people saying we don't care what the american people say it's why we vote over and over and over again including a guy last time who said i'm gonna shut down guantanamo i'm gonna stop all these wars did he no why because he's not truly in charge they give him enough but he's not gonna change anything and this guy goes in like him or hate him he doesn't care oh look at him he said why don't we put alligators down on the border You know why he said that? You know why he said that? Because everyone around him is coming up with some sort of an excuse. 
well, we can't build that wall because of environmental reasons, because of political reasons, because of international reasons. I want the country secure, is what he's saying. I want it secure. Now, I've come up with a billion ideas. Nobody in this room is helping me secure it. And the American people came, sent to me here. I came here on behalf of the American people who say they want their border secure. I don't care how you do it. Alligators. Put alligators down. If you geniuses can't come up with anything else, we're doing it. See, I I understand Donald Trump. I do understand the one thing that he does. Because I have worked in corporations my entire life. I have worked with... I remember them telling me back in 1981, I said, I want to go over to the Soviet Union. I want to broadcast from the Soviet Union. It's about to fall. It was 1979. It's about to fall. I want to go broadcast. Can't do it. 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 So I started doing it myself. And then somebody who had support in the company, they found themselves over in the Soviet Union. I know how corporations work. I know how the favors are played. I know how people are just like, can't be done, can't be done. I'm the guy who put 500,000 people on the mall in Washington, D.C. No, I'm sorry. I didn't put them there. I suggested it. And America responded to it. And you put yourself there. Everyone said, don't do it. Everyone said, you can't broadcast and do a restoring event from, uh, from Israel. Can't be done. Never been done. Right. That's why I did it from the temple stairs. The only Christian to speak there since the Romans. It can be done. But all of the people around, especially a president, all want to say no. This is about him actually changing the way things work in America. And you don't like it because he doesn't care what you think, members of the media. He doesn't care. How dare him call us the enemy of the people? Tell me what that action was. Tell me what that actually says to me. It says you don't care about me. You don't care about people who live here. Oh, well, we go into the middle of the country and we're treated like crap because we're in the middle of the country watching you talk to all of your friends and you're, you're dissing us, calling us names, treating us like crap. Despicable. Despicable. You know what, Zucker should have walked into that control room in the middle of that broadcast and say, shut it down. Tell Don Lemon to act like an adult. And those two are not to be on this network again. Because the only ones that like that were the people just like them. The only people that like that were the people in the capital city. All the journalists, they loved it. They laughed. I've been in that pit of despair at CNN. I know who those people are. 
I also know how many people are there keeping their mouth shut. Because as inclusive as you say you are, you're not inclusive at all. You're absolutely inclusive of anybody who agrees and will say everything that you believe and say. It's despicable. So today, I just want to talk to all damn rubes. You know, the people who are paying attention to the news. People that... People that aren't watching the coverage of the impeachment because they're not rubes. They know that you think we are and you think you can say anything. You think you can tell us that a man can be a woman and can have a baby and we buy into it. Well, we don't. Period. We don't. And we never will. Period. You know who the rubes are? The ones who think we actually believe what you're saying. You know who the rubes are? The people like Brian Stelter. The people who think every time they can get on and just say, this is what really happened. This is, you know what, Media Matters, can we just talk about how the right just lies and could get anything on the news? Tell me about it, Media Matters. We're not the rubes. If we were, we'd be watching and lapping this all up. We know. And we no longer find you amusing. I am so sick and tired of anybody, anybody in the press coming to me and saying, do you know what you did to divide this country? Yes. Yes, I admit it. And it's nothing like you did now. It's nothing like you've been doing for the last three years. Shut the hell up. Do you know what you're doing to divide this country? Don't ever, ever say that to me again. Don't ever say that to me again. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you! When Greta Thunberg drew national attention for her comments at the UN in the summer of 2019, some praised her performance as a stinging rebuke to the rich and powerful for failing to put the survival of the planet above their own needs. At just 16 years old, our next guest is already changing the world. For the 2019, she became the biggest voice on the biggest issue facing the planet. Others saw the exploitation of a young woman with emotional problems for propagandistic ends. A mentally ill Swedish child who is being exploited by her parents and by the international left. But there's no question that Thunberg's style of environmentalism, strident, urgent, and critical of global capitalism, has gained a strong foothold in contemporary politics. A 2019 paper from the journal Biosciences, co-signed by more than 11,000 scientists, asserted that planet Earth's population must be stabilized and ideally gradually reduced, and some politicians have questioned the morality of having children at all. There's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult, 
And it does lead, I think, young people to have a legitimate question, you know, should, is it okay to still have children? Educating everyone on the need to curb population growth seems a reasonable campaign to enact. Would you be courageous enough to discuss this issue and make it a key feature of a plan to address climate catastrophe? Well, I think the answer is yes. Fears of overpopulation and ecological disaster are also beginning to manifest on the far right, mixed in with an anti-immigrant animus. The logic was expressed in its most dramatic and twisted form in the 2019 manifestos of mass shooters in both New Zealand and Texas. If we can get rid of enough people, he wrote, then our way of life can become more sustainable. Whether contemporary proponents of these ideas know it or not, they're all intellectual heirs of the misguided 18th century thinker Robert Thomas Malthus, who believed that when human population increased, famine and environmental destruction would ensue. Malthus argued that population would always outstrip food supply because population would grow at exponential rates, whereas food supply could only grow at what he called arithmetic rates. Reason science correspondent Ron Bailey is the author of the 2015 book End of Doom. He didn't recognize that, in fact, crops and livestock are also populations, that they can also be exponentially increased at the same time as a human population was. And that's exactly what happened. Basically, the Malthusian prescription turns out to be completely wrong. In the contemporary world, Malthusianism was most famously expressed through the work of ecologist Paul Ehrlich, especially in his 1968 book, The Population Bomb. The only hope that there is, is that we will be able, at least in the United States, through the political process, to get a government that's courageous enough to say, look, we're overpopulated and we have to have population control and start moving in that direction. He predicted that through the 1970s and 80s, hundreds of millions would starve to death. He compared humanity to a cancer, writing that we must shift our efforts from treatment of the symptoms to the cutting out of the cancer. Ehrlich, who still holds an endowed professorship at Stanford, didn't respond to our interview request. His proposed solutions included taxing diapers, subsidizing vasectomies, and even spiking food aid and water supplies with sterilizing drugs, and then holding a lottery for access to the antidote. Similarly, ecologist Garrett Hardin in 1968 compared humanity to overbreeding cattle writing that the freedom to breed is intolerable. The only way to make this system work is to have the family be willing to give up one of its former freedoms, namely the freedom to determine how many children it was going to have. Ehrlich would turn out to be as wrong-headed as Malthus. Over the next half century, calories available per capita steadily increased in just about every region of the world, thanks largely to improved agricultural techniques and technology. Humans were not only consumers, we're also producers. We're able to create new things, to use resources in better and better ways over time. Human creativity can overcome the problems that Malthusians think that we're going to be suffering from overconsumption. We're using fewer and fewer resources to get more and more value over time. And yet world hunger is yet to be eradicated, with the UN reporting that about 10% of the global population is undernourished. And perhaps it's true that past trends don't predict the future. That's a lot of people. How are we going to feed them all? Karen Pitts, who was a member of the Sierra Club and ran a Northern California subcommittee on population growth, is concerned that the world won't be able to accommodate a population that's expected to peak at 11 billion by 2100. She became interested in the topic after a trip to China in 1996. As you flew over the country, every space was taken up by houses and housing. They are overpopulated. Whether or not they produce enough food is a big question, and we really can't take the risk of being wrong. 
While it's true that farmers will have to become 70% more efficient over the next 30 years to feed the growing population, the technology already exists to accomplish that goal. If all farmers were as efficient as U.S. corn growers, the world could feed 10 billion people today on half as much land. And as humanity continues moving into cities, the environment will likely be better protected, Bailey points out, because this allows for the restoration of forests and other ecosystems on the land migrants leave behind. Something like 90% of people will be living in cities by the end of the century. If that is the case, there'll be less than 2 billion people living on the landscape which means that there'll be far more scope for forests to return, for biodiversity to flourish, and we'll be using a lot less resources over that time. But today's Malthusians are most concerned about the disruptive effects of climate change. Citing global warming, documentarian David Attenborough described humanity as a plague upon the earth. I can't think of a single problem that wouldn't be easier to solve if there were less people. And the biosciences paper, signed by 11,000 scientists, projects total societal collapse if population isn't managed properly. We scientists have a moral obligation to clearly warn humanity of any catastrophic threat. It is more severe than anticipated, threatening natural ecosystems and the fate of humanity. There's a catastrophizing apocalyptic undercurrent. Ted Nordhaus, who is a founder of the Breakthrough Institute, which advocates technological solutions to environmental problems, believes the environmental movement has long been hindered by its anti-growth paradigm. Conventional environmental ideology posits human development and environmental protection oppositionally, and I have exactly the opposite view. Nordhaus says that the most effective way to deal with climate change is by promoting policies that accelerate economic growth. If you're really serious about accelerating the decline of fertility rates and the peak and stabilization of global population, you need to accelerate economic development for certainly probably three or four billion people over the next three or four decades. Most of today's environmentalists don't openly advocate for the draconian population control measures pushed by Ehrlich and other Malthusians in the 1970s. Karen Pitts says she just wants more sex education and greater access to birth control in the developing world, pointing to a project she participated in with Tanzania's local population. I have introduced contraception. We put tablets over there that they could use plus being able to administer family planning. And the contraception rate went from about 25% to over 54%. Surprisingly easy. Those women wanted family planning. Funding greater access to birth control and education for women in developing countries was also a recommendation of the biosciences paper. And it's a policy agenda of the UN and leading NGOs like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Nordhaus says such measures can help at the margins, but ultimately miss the big picture, which is that as wealth increases, fertility rates naturally fall as families invest more resources in fewer children. The real drivers of long-term fertility decline and population stabilization around the world are just kind of garden variety economic development, which a lot of the same people signing those documents are actually saying is the problem. The biosciences paper argues that economic growth is driving overconsumption of resources and says our goals need to shift from GDP growth and the pursuit of affluence towards sustaining ecosystems. As soon as we find new ways to do it, our consumption increases. That's the problem. 
Pitts is right that people in wealthier societies tend to consume resources and generate greenhouse gases at rates that are orders of magnitude higher than those in the third world. But Nordhaus points out that when poor societies become wealthy, there are more people positioned to help solve environmental problems in the only way that really works, with new technology environmental discourse has been overly focused on consumption. Technology is one of the key things that mediates the relationship between affluence and consumption and impacts. Wealthier, more developed societies are both better positioned to adapt to problems like climate change and climate impacts. A Category 5 hurricane creates a lot more devastation and a lot more loss of life and human impact in a poor society than in a rich society. They're also better positioned to develop and deploy new technology. Most of the success we've had in deploying nuclear or other clean energy technologies is actually in contexts where energy demand is growing quickly. And so Nordhaus advocates for greater reliance on clean, abundant energy like nuclear power to fuel advanced economies towards possibly innovating even lower impact alternatives. But the third world may still need to rely on traditional fossil fuels on its path to prosperity. Certainly over the next three or four decades, a lot of development, particularly in poor countries, is still going to be fossil based. But it could be natural gas and not coal. Or in Africa, for instance, just there's huge hydro capacity in projections of sort of where populations are going to stabilize or is really when you get down to the bottom of it is just ultimately a question of how rapidly Africa develops economically. Nordhaus says that climate change will likely continue to present challenges for governments, individuals, and societies in the coming decades, but that it's better to conceive the problem not as an asteroid hurtling towards Earth, dooming us to extinction unless we thwart it, but as a global case of diabetes. Diabetes when it's treated, is manageable. It depends on what we do. And that's not just about cutting carbon emissions. It's also development makes us more resilient to climate extremes of all sorts. Malthus wasn't completely wrong about the tendency of humans to deplete resources, says Bailey, but he failed to see that new ways of organizing society would ameliorate the problem. Up until about two centuries ago, Robert Thomas Malthus was about right, is that in fact, population was regulated by food supply. And something changed. The world understood the role of property rights, for example, the rule of law, and this dramatically changed the incentive structures that people had. Activists like Naomi Klein, who argued their economic system is at war with their climate system. She wants to replace it with some sort of communitarian socialism. I would suggest to you that doing that would exactly bring back the Malthusian conditions that we used to live in. The thing that we need to do is proceed to produce more wealth, more technology in order to ameliorate and overcome the problems that climate change is going to cause. Her prescription is exactly the opposite of what needs to be done. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? That's the kind of claim that it doesn't actually enlighten at all. It doesn't actually tell us anything about the real choices uh, we're faced with. What sorts of social and political and economic arrangements we ought to aspire to, you know, for a planet that is pretty soon going to be nine or 10 billion people. What it's not is going to be agrarian, traditional economies. With 10 billion people, if you ever tried to actually like have everybody live that way, we would just cut down every forest in the world and then we would collapse. This is not real. 
These are fantasies. She's gonna go back to Copenhagen and live a very righteous life as an international environmental celebrity in a wealthy city surrounded by extraordinary modern infrastructure, most of which was built with fossil fuels. That's Greta Thunberg's future, and I would like that future for everybody else on the planet. John Batchelor, this is the John Batchelor Show. Good evening. I welcome Michael Vlaos, an historian at Johns Hopkins. Michael and I pursuing our long conversation, Are We in a Civil War? I plunge to a counterfactual because the American Civil War in the middle of the 19th century is very close at hand. I tell Michael and I tell you all that in this last week I've discovered the muster book of the 69th Indiana Infantry in 1862, and there's my grand- great-grandfather's name. Uh, James, August 5th, 1862, and his brother, John, nearby. Never seen it before. They marched with Sherman south with Grant on Vicksburg. They were at the Battle of Arkansas Post. They were with Sherman in the disaster of December, Christmas, 1862, and then followed Grant as he ordered the 13th Corps south along the bayous to cross the Mississippi and attack and capture Vicksburg from the east. That happened in the summer of 1863. I mention all this because that's how close we are. Here I am on the radio in the 21st century, and that's my great-grandfather. Michael also is attached that firmly to the events of the Civil War. Therefore, Michael, a very good evening to you. I, provo- I present this counterfactual. We're now witnessing an impeachment and trial by Senate drama in the well of the Senate in Washington. There was a moment where impeachment was possible for Abraham Lincoln. Here's what I present. Instead of dying early, Preston Brooks died in 1857, but he was a congressman from South Carolina, a relative of the senator from South Carolina, Andrew Butler, who also died young in 1857. But instead, they live on to see Lincoln elected by plurality in 1860. We know between the election of Lincoln in uh, the fall of 1860 and Lincoln's inauguration in March of 1861, the South seceded, led by South Carolina, seceded from the Union. What if instead, here's the counterfactual, Brooks had led an impeachment in the Rump Congress and Butler had led the trial in the Senate. They were leading slaveocrats. They had a great deal of authority with the Southern democracy, which which became the Confederacy. Good heavens, Jefferson Davis had been the Secretary of War. They were very well ensconced in Washington. They were all powerful. It was called the F Street Mess, where they ate together every night and plotted against the abolitionists. What if they led an impeachment of Lincoln and either removed him from office, which would have required a two-thirds, or so weakened him that Lincoln made a compromise and never stood up for abolition never stood up for holding the union together. Michael, is that not now the possibility, the black swan possibility of what we're seeing in the Senate? Because it would lead to complete alienation 
of the voters for Trump and a broken constitution. Good evening to you, Michael. Good evening, John. The um, counterfactual, as they call it, the alternative pathway um, did not happen or was not in a position to develop uh, in large part because the South had generally, by 1860, uh, decided that they wanted to to push things. And it, it w- was a couple of, of, of hotheads uh, in the uh, initial Democrat convention in Charleston that, that split the Democratic Party. Had that not happened, had the South considered that they could weather an election, and even if Lincoln were elected, they would still hold a majority in the Senate, and maybe enough of a majority to actually not only impeach but but convict uh, Lincoln, then um, that might have been a path. In other words, the the kind of approach that Democrats are seeking to achieve today, which it, it doesn't look like uh, a possibility, but in fact, had had the the uh, the slaveholding party, which called itself the democracy, had they lost the election of 1860 but hung together, they would have had um, a strong plurality in the Senate, and they would have had, I think, the Unionists, who are all uh, Southern Whigs, and thus on their side, they could have had all that ready-made and created, I think, a situation where... uh, it would be the Republicans who were in a position of having to go into some form of open rebellion, and the Republicans, furthermore, that would be in a situation of strategic weakness. Now, this alternative path uh, it, it is very creative because it highlights the, the real failing of the Southern cause in considering that it may have had other strategic political options, which could have been exercised, but which they failed to analyze and properly assess. Now, had they been capable of that, and had they decided on a political strategy, they had the Supreme Court in their pockets still, and they had the Senate, and it may have been uh, possible to have created a situation where uh, uh, Lincoln would either be... um, Impeached and convicted. Now, that's a long shot because of, of Congress. But it, it is a real possibility that they could have uh, destroyed Lincoln's ability to govern and made him look like a, 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 a failure, but worse than a failure, a kind of yokel failure, because Lincoln was presented often as a, a rube you know, uh, as a, a sort of hick from the backwoods, right? And uh, although that became a strength a century later in mythology, at the time it was a real weakness. And, and Lincoln didn't have authority, and he didn't have a long period uh, to build his own standing within uh, within the Senate or Congress before he became president. So I think there's a real possibility the South could have played then the role that the Democrats are playing today. And let me read you from Rich Lowry's column, which suggested all this. This is Rich Lowry, the editor of the National Review Online. Listen to this, Michael. If Trump were actually convicted, the 2020 election would proceed under a cloud of illegitimacy. Tens of millions of Trump voters wouldn't accept the result. 
They'd see it as an inside job to deny the incumbent president a chance to run for re-election without a single voter for voter having a direct say. The GOP would be brought to its knees by internal bloodletting, a prospect that Democrats surely would welcome, especially given that it would deliver them the presidency. Republicans would be out for revenge, and instead of halcyon return to normalcy, our politics would be even more poisonous than before. Michael, that is a, we can do the analogy. That's what would have happened in 1860. Rich Lowry is entertaining the possibility that it's not a probability, but it's a possibility that that is a a crash that we're headed for. Well, um, Mr. Lowry doesn't pursue what might actually unfold in this kind of terrible circumstances, calamity for I, I know. He was just viewing a, a glimpse of the black swan coming across the lake. He didn't see it yeah. land. Yes. But, but, but the fact is that, you know, we can uh, build out from that possibility were the president to be convicted uh, and for uh, the vice president to take over and then run for uh, uh, election. And that would be a situation where uh, upon the Republican defeat, I think you would see some of the reaction uh, at a state level uh, that we're seeing now, beginning by Democrats with the whole sanctuary city movement, but becoming essentially um, a precedent-shattering movement uh, just over the last several months in Virginia, uh, uh, which, when faced with a draconian uh, anti-gun legislation by the now in power uh, Democrats, uh, 94% of all counties and townships in Virginia declared themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuaries. So secession in Virginia, let's discuss that when we come back, Michael, because I know you've been intimately involved in these details and even attending the rally in Richmond. Michael's going to give us what is happening in Virginia now as a model for what Rich Lowry would said might be possible were uh, Donald Trump to be removed from office before the election. And what my counterfactual entertains was a possibility in 1860, short of the catastrophe of Fort Sumter. I'm John Batchelor. This is The John Batchelor Show. I'm John Batchelor. This is the John Batchelor Show. My colleague, Michael Flahos, Johns Hopkins, we're entertaining, is this a civil war? And we plunged into a counterfactual of what if the Democrats in 1860 had used the impeachment tool to remove Lincoln from office before he was inaugurated, leaving the Constitution hanging, but at the same time winning the argument without firing on Fort Sumter. We now entertain the possibility that Donald Trump, the possibility, not probability, that Donald Trump removed from office would leave us without a man to be reelected in November of this year and uh, shatter the Republican Party. But the result would look like alienation. And Michael now will take us to Virginia, where I think alienation is a fair word for what's going on, Michael. Absolutely. But the, the, the sweep and, and scope of the new laws proposed are not just uh, going to affect the Second Amendment, but but clearly the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. And um, w- what we're looking at is a curtailment of free speech and assembly uh, by um, 
by the state government. And uh, the free speech will mean that no criticism can be made of the government or any uh, Democratic uh, elected official. And that is part and parcel with um, a sense of um, exuberant uh, despotism, you might call it, that sweeps uh, a party when it is suddenly completely in control of of the reins of power. And so let us imagine um, uh, an election in which uh, the Republicans go down to terrible defeat uh, uh, after the conviction of uh, our president, and that the Democrats sweep into power with the Senate, Congress, and of course the presidency, and then embark upon a, a strong set of programs, a, uh, a, a momentous agenda, including the Green New Deal and um, uh, you know total uh, government control of health care and education, and uh, a situation in which um, a majority of Americans would not only, not a majority, let's say the classic 50% uh, that indicates the split in America today, you would have them uh, calling, I think, for uh, something like uh, a, a legal equivalent of secession, which, of course, is what is embodied in the Second Amendment sanctuary movement. So what I could see... Uh, relatively, uh, in, in a relatively straightforward way, proceeding after the election would be uh, a number of states, red states, of course, declaring themselves to be, if not sanctuary states, then unwilling to follow whatever the decisions of Congress are. And uh, this would create um, an actual constitutional crisis, far more severe than what happened during the Nixon impeachment, uh, impending impeachment, but uh, uh, of an equivalent uh, scale to the Civil War. And one doesn't know how that might be resolved because um, the the Supreme Court might weigh in. And um, at that point, you have a a potential struggle in which um, between the government and the courts and then the states, which is just ripe with possibility. And uh, we we can only guess at what might uh, eventuate from then. I want to learn uh, from you, Mike, about what's going on in Virginia, because we'll take Virginia as a mini me of this larger mm-hmm. uh, of this larger contretemps. Uh, as I understand it, and you attended the rally at Richmond, and you hear from your colleagues and friends and people you meet. As I understand it, the governor of Virginia and the legislature, now entirely Democratic controlled, are looking to pass legislation. That is deliberately provocative. That's the way it reads from here, from outside. And that the provocations are backed up by threats about what will happen to you if you do this or don't do that or you attempt to conduct yourself with the Second Amendment as your as your guide. And that that provocation is meant to elicit some kind of bad acting. Is that is that too cynical on my part, Mike? Right. There's a lot of, of baiting going on, and uh, some of the threats are extreme. They involve uh, a threat to bring in the National Guard to, to confiscate guns, for example, or um, a threat to arrest people uh, who gather in groups of more than two or three. Or and and what you had at Richmond was a, was a Woods, Woodstock revisited for older guys, right? I mean, that's what you had, love and peace. Oh, oh the, 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 the rally was 
w- was just uh, it was like a festival, right? And and people were incredibly courteous and uh, agreeable and uh, supporting each other. It was. Yeah, it was a, a, a lot, a lot like a kind of a Woodstock. But, on, but the government, uh, the city. governor used provocative language, and I'm taking mm-hmm. this model and expanding it nationally, because the result of this disruption with impeachment and removal before an election would leave the Democrats in charge, possibly of all levers right. except for the court, then and they would. They- would they then move? Would they then move for accommodation, or would they then move to be provocative? You know, no, reversing no, no, everything. They'd, they'd be harsh. And and one of the things that provocation uh, seeks to uh, achieve is is to put the, um, uh, the 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 party out of control in into uh, a position where they are seen as the disruptors that require yet more force to control. In other words, the 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 entire maneuver is designed to create the appearance that these are potential terrorists and agitators uh, and that all of these sweeping laws that are being enacted by the party now in complete power uh, are are necessary to keep uh, people safe in 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 the society and that would that would be something that once once pushed cannot be controlled it would escalate and so um, my my sense is that we, again using Virginia as a kind of precursor or or a premonitionary moment, if um, the uh, the government of Virginia under Democrats were to initiate any sort of gun confiscation process, you would see uh, the beginning of violence, and then that could spread uh, like a. A forest fire or prairie fire. This is, uh, again, if you were to go to Ukraine in the period um, after the Maidan demonstrations and and look at people getting angrier and angrier, there was a point at which a spark ignited the whole thing. And you had had the violence that led to the very short uh, civil war and Russian intervention. Well, um, this is the same sort of thing that could happen now because, of course, the the focal point of all of this, symbolically, but also in a very real sense, uh, is, surrounds uh, uh, firearms and an essential constitutional Michael, right and free speech. Michael Vlahos of Johns Hopkins, we will continue this conversation, a counterfactual conversation about what if Lincoln had been removed by impeachment and a speculation about civil war in the 21st century. I'm John Batchelor.